after the oracles of Balaam, which held such an optimistic view of Israel's history, we might imagine that right after Balaam, things are going to go really well and pretty quickly for Israel. After all, God has planned to bless the Israelites. The oracles of Balaam were abundantly clear that God's mind will not change about his covenant promises. He is immutable, and his unchangeable purposes toward his people are for their good, for their blessing. We even learn in the oracles of Balaam, especially the fourth oracle, future dominion from a coming king. The king of Israel would exercise dominion and accomplish that defeat of God's enemies. The future of Israel seems bright. To say the very least, Balak would be distressed by all of Balaam's good words about Israel. And, and then this chapter happens. Of course it does. Back to back. The oracles of Balaam come to an end and chapter 25 is told. Let's remember where we are and when we are. Where we are is Israel is to the east of the Jordan River in a region of Moab. They won't be at Moab for much longer because when they are is they are in the 40th year of their wilderness wandering. And they're not so much wandering in the wilderness anymore, are they? But in the 40th year, they've been taken to a place to be geographically positioned for conquest. Joshua will succeed Moses and in the book of Joshua lead the Israelites across. But for the rest of this book and for all of Deuteronomy, the Israelites are at this location in the place of Moab. However, this story doesn't sound like the kind of experience for Israel that the oracles of Balaam had held out. Israel becomes severely damaged in this story. Numbers 25 talks about a people that experienced the judgment of God. And interestingly, it ends up resulting in the kind of thing that King Balak of Moab would have wanted. Balak would have wanted the Israelites to be weakened in some way that they might be militarily overcome. And yet, the death of these Israelites in Numbers 25 is not because Balaam cursed Israel. God's plan was to bless Israel. The effect of chapter 25 is not due to any of Balaam's curses, but to Israel's own rebellion. This is not something that was imposed upon them from the outside that caused their rebellion. But the temptations, while outward initially, revealed internal rot and poison and spiritual waywardness that bore nasty fruit. So we see in Numbers 25, not the success of Balaam's oracles that would have been efforts to curse Israel. He blessed the people. But Balak's desire for Israel's undoing, and what we wonder here is if this is happening, and yet from the inside, Israel's own rebellion. The location of this sin within the region of Moab is in a place called Shittim. And in verses 1 through 3, the sin of the Israelites takes place this way. While Israel lived in Shittim, that is in the plains of Moab, while they lived there, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. That's a very graphic verse. For, for whoring to be in the verbal form, they began to whore with the daughters of Moab. 
The daughters of Moab is a phrase to speak about ladies who lived in Moab and were Moabites. But to whore with the daughters of Moab, and then in verse 2, to experience sacrificial acts with, um, with the Moabites to the gods of Moab, is these are two verses combining what you found together all the time in the ancient Near East. Idolatrous acts and sexual immorality. These two things are paired often in sacrificial activities of the ancient Near East. So when we read in verse 1 that it began to whore with the daughters of Moab, the ancient reader would not be surprised that verse 2 is also taking place. Invitation to sacrifice to the gods of the peoples. This place, Shittim, will be important in the book of Joshua. I've already alluded to this book because Joshua is going to lead the people from the plains of Moab across the Jordan River. But we also know that before the conquest of the land, Joshua is going to send spies. Here in Joshua chapter 2 verse 1, Joshua the son of Nun sent two spies secretly from Shittim. The place where spies will later leave to go and spy out the, conquest, uh, the soon-to-be-conquested land will be this area of Shittim. Here in Numbers 25, it's a place of rebellion, not uh, a rising energy of activity and anticipation where the conquest is drawn near. Here we are heartbroken to see activity of the Israelites that is in direct violation of the first and second commandments. You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any images of those gods. And here they, will inv- they are invited to join the sacrifices of Moabite worship. And it tells us that not only are they invited, the people, the Israelites, ate and bowed down to their, the Moabites, gods. The deliberation and premeditation is clear. You don't trip and find yourself involved in idol worship. Okay, This isn't like, oh my goodness, what just happened? This is a deliberate response to an invitation and engagement, one decision after another in the wrong direction for immorality and idolatry. It is a complete abrogation of the Ten Commandments. This is such a serious abrogation of the commandments that when we look at the penalties and consequences specified in Exodus and in Leviticus, this kind of high-handed rebellion of idolatry and immorality, this kind of premeditated treasonous activity is punishable by death. And tells us in Psalm 106 verse 28 that reflects on this passage tonight, they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and plague broke out among them. So Psalm 106 is telling us what happens here in Numbers 25. If we see verse 3, Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Yoked himself. This is picturing Israel as a collective singular Yoked himself is imagery of being bound up to something like an animal for working agriculture. You have yoking together as the idea of joining or connecting. And Israel has joined himself to Baal. Baal is a familiar god of the Canaanites, Moabites, in the many books that will follow, especially in the books of Samuel and Kings. 
For the first time in the Old Testament, Baal appears here in Numbers 25. And the use of the name Baal will take place as a reference to a deity that the Israelites will be entangled in the worship of in centuries that would follow. Baal is a fertility god. He is a deity that the uh, Canaanite worshipers and others besides them would seek to appease, hoping that their crops and harvest would be blessed. And if Baal was displeased, they would not experience harvest and agricultural fruit. And here, Israel has yoked himself to Baal. And this is a picture of joining in the fellowship of idolatry, knowing that you are offering and sacrificing things to Baal, and engaging in sacrificial immorality. The idea in the ancient world was that gods could be moved to act if you could stimulate them with sexual activity on the earth. And therefore, in the ancient world, you would find paired over and over again the idea of worship of one of the gods and immorality at one of the idol shrines. And I know that's disturbing to think through. It's disturbing to read the Israelites engaging in. And yet, we understand why the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, verse 3 says. Now, I know we've left Balaam behind in terms of his oracles, but hold on one moment. Because later in the book of Numbers, we're given a little bit of information that isn't specified in chapter 25. So I'm going to borrow a verse from chapter 31. And this verse is going to help us see why Israel's temptations are the way they are, given Balaam's earlier role. So if we remember Balaam brought in from the east to come to Moab and to curse the Israelites, but he will only give what the word of the Lord is for him, right? So he gives these blessing oracles to affirm God's plan to bless and keep and and shepherd the people against Balak's uh, desires and even funding. But Numbers 31 says in verse 16 about these Moabite daughters, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. Very carefully, we must notice that these, these women, these temptations, were on or at the instigation of Balaam. Balaam's advice. So I think we should imagine the plausible scenario that follows. Balak has said, I've paid you to curse the people. All you've done is bless the people. I want you to go home. And Numbers 24 ends with Balaam's oracles, and he's prepared to return home as he had been directed. But before he leaves, Numbers 31 says, here's what must have happened. Balaam says, well, I can't curse the people. You want them to be judged by their Lord. Here's something to try. And so at Balaam's instigation, you can imagine Balak's eyes getting wide. So this might work. So this is what we can lay out before them. And that the Israelites would step into this trap. One writer puts it this way. Balaam and Balak could not curse Israel externally, but Israel can bring on itself the curse, judgment from God. We understand that the Lord's anger is rightly kindled. In fact, Israel leaves Sinai in chapter 10 and the episodes of distress and murmuring and judgment begin to take place starting in chapter 11. 
You could conceive of all of chapter 11 to chapter 25 as a unit of the murmuring, wandering Israelites. Where over and over again there are opportunities for them to trust the Lord and instead they rebel. Either with certain individuals or in large groups and the anger of the Lord is kindled. The anger of the Lord is kindled in chapter 11 at the beginning of that big travel unit. And it's kindled here when they've arrived to the eastern side of the Jordan River. The anger of the Lord is kindled. In verses 4 and 5, judgment is pronounced. And we're not surprised at this either. The situation is so outrageous. We are rightly dumbfounded that the Israelites would be doing this very thing. Verses 4 and 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. The pronouncement of judgment seems to have in mind that the Israelite activity of idolatry and immorality was not stopped by the leaders of these clans and tribes, but rather not only permitted, perhaps even facilitated, and these leaders bear a kind of responsibility for the absolute disarray that the Israelites are finding themselves in. So the chiefs of the people are to experience a very serious consequence. In fact, public death. So that their public, uh, the public display of their bodies would, if you will, deter hopefully any future crazy activity. One writer puts it this way. Um, this refers to the public nature of their punishment in order to expiate the divine wrath. And what this means is that it would be turned away or satisfied. In verse 4, notice the fierce anger of the Lord might then turn away from the people of Israel. Sin must be punished. This high-handed and outrageous and inexcusable and premeditated activity is so disobedient that the public public, um, judgment would be warranted. So in verse 4, the Lord's pronouncement is that to Moses. And then Moses says to the judges, and I want you to notice here that it's not exactly, not exactly what the Lord had just said to him. This has intrigued some Bible readers because what you don't have is the Lord saying something to Moses and then Moses passing on that instruction. He just said to Moses, take the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away. But Moses says to the judges of Israel, I take those to be different from the chiefs, okay? The judges would be those who would be assessing and deliberating, administering penalties or declaring verdicts. He says to the judges, each of you, Kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. This may mean Moses is concerned that the problem is beyond just the chiefs. So that the consequence would be applied more broadly. Now it doesn't tell us a couple things. It doesn't tell us if the chiefs were ever publicly executed. And it doesn't tell us if the judges in verse 5 obeyed any of Moses' instructions. We, We don't know... Who or how any of those particular instructions were fulfilled. We're just not given that information. But what we do see is a seriousness both from the Lord's mouth and then to Moses, from Moses to the judges that sin is to be punished and the violators are to be executed. What we see in the remainder of the passage is a zooming in in a particular scene. A surprising turn of events. In fact, um, in verse 6... The outrageous sin of a couple is described that is then handled by a man named Phineas. 
Uh, and the reason we, we would want to pause here for a moment before we look at verse 6 is because there will be language of a plague that stops in verses that will follow. It, it may be the case that Moses is not carrying out precisely what the Lord had said. Or that the judges are not carrying out precisely what Moses has said. And so that a plague among the violators will ensure proper justice administered. Admittedly, that is speculative. Because we're not told who obeyed Moses and who, if any chiefs, were publicly executed. But there does seem to be a plague that is involved. And that is the Lord's sovereign doing in order to bring judgment. But holding what's about to be said in, in, the, in the air for a moment, we return to verse 6. Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. One of the reasons a plague may already be unfolding is because of the presence of weeping among Israelites here. It would be fitting if people were already under the judgment of God, knowingly under the judgment of God, that there would be contrition, lamenting at the tent of meeting. In fact, this is the perfect place for it because here is the place where people would draw near to God. Moses is found there. It's in the sight of Moses and others while they're weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle, right? So here at this place of holy worship, what has happened with the camp of Israel? They have defiled the camp. They have defiled the camp by rejecting the first commandments of the ten. They have engaged in Moabite deity worship, the worship of Baal. And with Gentiles, these Moabites, whom they were to be a light unto for the true knowledge of God, and have instead taken on their sexual practices and their worship practices, none of which are good. In verse 6, a person among the Israelites has with him a Midianite woman. Now, Midianites have been mentioned prior to this. In fact, Moses' wife Zipporah was from Midian. We see that in Exodus chapter 2. However, Israel's relationship with the Midianites is complicated. We know that in Numbers chapter 22, Midianites had allied themselves with Moabites against Israel. So this is not a good situation. This is not like a Midianite woman wanting to leave her idols and worship the Lord like Ruth the Moabite was ready to go with her mother-in-law Naomi back to the promised land. Your God will be my God. That is not this situation. This situation is an Israelite man and a Midianite woman coming to this area where Moses sees them and in the sight of others who are weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. In verse 7, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, sees this. Now, we don't know yet why this is such a big deal until we know where he follows them. This man and this woman intend to engage in sexual immorality and perhaps even false worship, just like was a problem among broader, the broader Israelite camp in chapter 25. Here is a zoomed in example of an Israelite and a Midianite woman about to do what is defiling for their own uh, humanity and for the camp of Israel. Here you have Phineas on the scene. Phineas is the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest. He saw it. Phineas sees this couple, he sees them going, and he rises. And leaves the congregation with a spear. 
with a spear. Now, what do we need to know about Phineas? He's the grandson of Aaron. You've got to think about this order. Initially, Aaron is the high priest, but Aaron has died, hasn't he? In Numbers 20, Aaron dies, and he is, he is replaced by Eliezer, the son of Aaron. Eliezer is now high priest. Phineas is the son of Eliezer. He sees what's taking place. Now, why is he able to see this? Other parts outside Numbers help us here. First Chronicles 9 says that Phineas was a chief officer among the gatekeepers of the tabernacle. In other words, Phineas is at his place of proper Levitical employment. He is at the tabernacle, as you would expect the Levites to do and to be. Phineas is there at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And we know from Numbers chapter 3, here's what job his father had. It tells us in Numbers 3.32, Eliezer was chief over the chiefs of Levites, having oversight of those who kept guard over the sanctuary. But stuff has happened since Numbers 3. Eliezer is not the guy who's the chief over the Levites. He's the high priest now. Who has taken the father's job as one leading over and presiding over guardianship of the tabernacle and the camp of the Lord? Phineas. In other words, what I don't want you to think happened next was some vigilante instinct. This is not Phineas saying, well, I've got an idea and here's a spear. And some rash thing takes place. Phineas, like we learned much earlier in Numbers, is a guardian of the sanctity of the holy place and its vicinity. And what has come into the vicinity of the camp of Israel, but outright and outrageous defilement and idolatry and sexual immorality on Phineas's watch. He is not engaging in some sort of vigilante activity. He is guarding the holiness of Yahweh in the camp. So he takes a spear which is this long knifed instrument. I don't know how long we should imagine this spear, but uh, it, this, is, this can be translated like a long knife. And priests who are guarding, Levites who are guarding the sanctuary, who are presiding over its sanctity, would be armed. And the reason they would be armed is earlier in Numbers 3, we're told that if any violators came into the camp, they were to be executed. So what is Phineas doing? We've got to remember very specifically then who he is. He is the son of the current high priest. He's presiding in guardianship over the holiness of the tabernacle. And drawing near to this place is a couple intending to engage in dishonor to God. And Phineas rises with a spear in his hand. So with all of this in mind, we see in verse 8, he went after the man of Israel into the chamber We find that uh, this man will later be identified, and he's the son of a chief in Israel. Now, earlier we had some issues by virtue of the Lord's own pronouncement that the chiefs were to be publicly executed. This is one of their sons. Okay, so this is a son of one of the chiefs. He's this man here. I'm giving us a little bit of information earlier. He is from the tribe of Simeon, this, uh, this uh, sinning man here. And the tribe of Simeon is directly south of the tabernacle. 
And a chief might have a very prominent residence near the tabernacle, which means all of this is taking place in the view of people who could watch this and then this man go into his tent or chamber with this woman. It tells us in verse 8, Phineas went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly, which leads interpreters to conclude, and I think rightly so, that when Phineas comes upon them, they have now begun to engage in sexual immorality and one spear thrust handles both of them. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. You might wonder, why didn't Phineas's father take up a spear? Well, remember, Eliezer is the high priest. And according to Leviticus 21, high priests had an even stricter demand upon them about engaging with corpses. To engage with a dead body in any way was to be rendered unclean. It would be more fitting for priests or Levites among the camp to be unclean than even for the high priest himself. So that's likely why Phineas sees this as a responsibility that he must undertake. And he exercises both discernment and zeal and execution because he has been confirmed in this very role by the guardianship of the Levites over the tabernacle. It is his job. The question would be, perhaps... Why is Phineas the only one reported doing something? Or did anybody else look at his action and think, well, we thought about it, or we saw this take place over here or there, but here Phineas has helped to lead the way. He has set an example in very dramatic fashion. We're told in verse 9, those who died by the plague were 24,000. 24,000. Now, I want you to think about this number for a moment. We have seen the Israelites experience judgments of the Lord where high numbers of casualties were mentioned at the end. None higher than this one. This is the highest total thus far in the Bible of a judgment in the camp of Israel. Even earlier, when Korah and his allies rebelled against the Lord, the rebellion... And the execution of the rebels totaled 14,700. This is 24,000 Israelites. And I want you to hear from Numbers chapter 26 something. This is the next chapter, and this is coming near the very end of this chapter where a census is taken. Numbers 26, I think, is going to help us see how significant what we just read is with that number and and the the, uh, sheer scope of that death. Numbers 26, 64 says, Among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, They shall die in the wilderness, and not one of them was left except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. At the end of the next chapter, we're being told that none were left of that wilderness generation under the judgment of God. And you might think to yourself, okay, wait a second, none were left. What happened to them? Well, well, I think in Numbers 25, we know. 
I think in Numbers 25, it is reasonable to go where multiple Old Testament interpreters suggest we go in our thinking. That the plague removed the remainder of the wilderness rebels who had been under the judgment of God since Numbers 13 and 14. This is a very, very significant moment. And Phineas represents the best of the next generation. He has zeal for the commandments of God. He wants to guard the holy place in the camp of Israel. He sees it as both a responsibility and a privilege, having been set apart from the tribe of Levi. He represents the best among that next generation. And those that died by the plague were 24,000. I think we should imagine that those included um, uh, rebels from that wilderness generation that now have been null and void. You know, they did have an episode in that wilderness generation much earlier. And I don't mean numbers. I don't even mean Leviticus. Go earlier. In the book of Exodus... The people are delivered out of captivity and they go to Mount Sinai and Moses is at the mountain receiving revelation from God. And what are the people of Israel doing? They are yoking themselves in false worship. They are making a golden calf facilitated by Aaron the high priest. And a plague breaks out and kills many thousands of them. And then we're told in Exodus... This is in chapter 34, after these situations are resolved and Moses has interceded for the people and God has passed by Moses. In Exodus 34, he says, Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their other gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you're invited that you would eat of their sacrifice and take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. The Lord is, in Exodus 34, exhorting the people to true and right worship, to not forget the Lord, lest they go toward the land and forsake Him. Lest they make a covenant with other inhabitants, lest they whore after their gods. And what God warned about in Exodus 34 is what ends up taking place in Numbers 25. What did they do? They took the daughters of the gods of Moab and they yoked themselves with false worship. They did exactly what Yahweh forbade them to do. So, I think we are right to see that the amount of people who have now died by this plague complete the judgment upon the wilderness generation. That's a big moment to arrive at in our storyline of numbers. It's a huge moment. And then we're told in verse 10. In verses 10 through 13, really. Language about covenant and priesthood. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Now, when we think of jealousy, it would be natural to think of negative connotations in human jealousy, perhaps. But jealousy doesn't always have to be something that's just in negative connotations. It can be because you're rightly loving something that's under threat. It can be that you ought to be provoked to jealousy when some sort of covenantal or devotional thing is being threatened. And when Yahweh's righteousness is on display and his covenant love toward his people is wrapped not only into his pledge to them, but their pledge to him. When they go after other gods, it is spiritual unfaithfulness. And it rightly kindles a divine jealousy that's spoken of in the Ten Commandments. I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God. 
But this is not a sinful jealousy or because the Lord is weak or deficient. This is a holy and pure jealousy. In other words, it is right that the Lord not share his glory with what is not God. Phineas also cares about that. So the way it's described is that Phineas has my jealousy. Phineas is zealous for the right worship of God. God is zealous for the right worship of God. Phineas is like God in that way. Phineas is greatly distraught and rightly provoked by what happened in the Israelite camp and seeing that Israelite man and that Midianite woman head to their chamber in their tent where they are going to engage in immorality among the camp and near the tabernacle. It's outrageous. And Phineas says, he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. So Phineas's zeal is something commended by the book of Psalms. I'm going to go back to Psalm 106. In Psalm 106, not only are we told about that event of Israel's immorality, Phineas is also named. I mean, Phineas is not named a lot after numbers. So, you know, when he is named, it's interesting. And in Psalm 106, it says, Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to Phineas as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Counted as righteousness. Well, that's language similar to Genesis, where Abraham looks at the stars, believes the word of God. God counts his faith as righteousness. When Phineas acts in the way he does, he acts in response to what he believes. We should see Psalms interpreting Numbers 25 as Phineas acting by faith. He believes God. He is zealous for the righteousness of God and the right worship of God. And the Psalms, not just the Psalms, but also scriptures that follow uh, Numbers 25, the Psalms as well, they do not criticize Phineas' work. They uphold it and affirm it. And then from the Lord's own mouth in verse 12, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him, the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Whoa! I mean, verses 12 and 13 here are using language about commitment and covenant with the priesthood. And I think this matters because Phineas is not the only descendant of Aaron alive. There is Ithamar, who is currently uh, alive as well. There are the children of Phineas, uh, the children of Ithamar. And here we're being told that the line of Phineas will have God's own commitment to it in terms of priestly work. Not because someone outside of the line of Phineas, but who was still a Levite, couldn't do uh, work around the tabernacle. We see from 1 Chronicles, people outside the uh, line of Phineas did support and aid the priesthood and work of the tabernacle. But it is, if you will, a way of affirming the acts of Phineas and associating with him the perpetual priesthood and its covenant language. I give to him my covenant of peace. It shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood. So Phineas can count on the fact that from his line will continue to come priests. But not just that. Eliezer will one day die. And who will be high priest then? Phineas. The one who once upon a time speared a couple in their tent south of the tabernacle. 
It shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God. So both in the narration of the story and in the words of God reported in the story, the zeal of Phineas is highlighted. It is a good thing. And then in verses 14 and 15, let's think about the name of the sinning couple. We return to them, and it's interesting that in the order of the story, we weren't given their names or uh, ancestry until this moment, other than that the man was an Israelite and the woman was a Midianite. But here's some more information. Verses 14 and 15, names of the sinning couple. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. Now, this means Salu being a chief, um, he would have been implicated by the Lord's instruction in verse 1. Moses, execute the chiefs of the houses. And that my wrath might turn away. And we see here the implications of the neglect spiritually that those chiefs would be charged with. Here is the son of one of those people. This guy Zimri, the son of Salu. Zimri is taking a Midianite woman and he's going into one of the Simeonite areas into his own tent to fornicate together. Even the term Zimri is ironic. The name means a thing to be protected and kept sacred. Well, he doesn't live up to that name at all. He, rather than a thing to be protected and sacred, is going to leave something defiled and corrupt. What about the woman in verse 15? The name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. Now, we know a little something more about this person uh, that she's from, this guy Zur, because of Numbers 31 also. Zur is one of the kings of Midian. One of the five kings of Midian, Numbers 31.8 says. And in Numbers 31.8, when we know that he's one of the five kings of Midian, his daughter Cosby is a princess, let's say. In other words, she is a very important figure among Midianite leadership. And the Israelite man is a chief's son. Both of them occupy a status in Israel and in Midian that is significant socially, communally. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed is Cosby. Ah, her name is interesting as well. It means liar. It means liar. Here you have someone instigated by Balaam and others, no doubt Balak, but Balaam, according to Numbers 31, advising Moabite women and alongside them Midianite allies who would tempt the Israelites. Liar indeed. Deception indeed. Her very name signals it. So she lives up to her name, and Zimri does not embody the truth of his. In verses 16 to 18, there's a command that closes our passage tonight about opposing the Midianites. And what we have here are not uh, commands that would implicate, you know, Moses' earlier relationship with Zipporah, who was a Midianite. We're talking about the, the in Numbers 25, the current Hostile relationship the Midianites have assumed toward the Israelites. This is, this is what's in view when they say the following. The Lord spoke to Moses 
saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they've harassed you with their wiles, with which they've beguiled you in the matter of Peor, and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. The word harass means to treat as hostile. It means that in their words and actions, the Israelites are to sense enmity between themselves and these Midianites. These are not friends of Christ. These are not people who love Yahweh and want true and right worship. Rather, they are to harass the Midianites in a sense of having a hostile posture toward them. And all we should conclude from that is not that they were never to love their enemies or to proclaim to them true worship and invite them to worship Yahweh. It's to say, given the enmity that the Midianites have shown, the Israelites are to oppose and eventually prevail over. When we're told here that they have harassed you, the response is a kind of just return. In other words, it's an eye for an eye mentality in a communal sense. The Midianites have come against you, so you should oppose them. And one of the reasons we know this will take place is because of the book of Numbers and in chapter 31. In Numbers 31, there is an attack on the Midianites. This seems to be to fulfill this earlier command. Now, we've looked at some very specific details about this story. And I did reference earlier Exodus 32 with the golden calf worship. But I want to zoom out for a moment from this story. And I want to draw some other connections to the earlier rebellion at Sinai. And I want you to notice a mold that appeared in um, Exodus 32 through 34 that has correspondences in our passage tonight. When we last saw Balaam... Balaam was on an upraised position, receiving the word of the Lord. He was lifted up in this mountainous area to view all the tribe-by-tribe Israelite encampment. And when Moses is on the scene in Exodus 32, he's not at the bottom with the Israelites. He's on the mountain receiving the words of the Lord. But what takes place while these respective prophetic figures are in these mountainous regions. Below, in the camp of Israel, we can say number two, the Israelite camp delves into idolatry. That happens in Exodus 32, and they build a golden calf, and it happens in Numbers 25. And we also see that in both locations of the Old Testament, a plague results. A plague is reported in Exodus 32, verse 35. And a plague is reported here in Numbers 25. We also see that Moses, directed by the Lord, is to immediately deal with some wrongdoers by executing them. And that happens in Exodus 32. Pronouncements to execute the wicked are given also in Numbers 25. And then lastly, and fifthly, in each of those respective locations where idolatry takes place, words are affirmed about the priesthood for Israel. The the Levites are to be the set-apart ones, according to Exodus 32. And now Phinehas and the priesthood are highlighted once more in Numbers 25. In other words, the camp of Israel, made up primarily of those wilderness generation Israelites in Exodus, 
are under the judgment of God when we get uh, away from Sinai into Numbers. And in Numbers 25, the remainder of them are dead. Or they die. Leaving, if you will, and setting up for us in the chapters that follow the new generation that has risen up in the wilderness and hopefully will embody the zeal of Phineas, the son of the high priest. Speaking of priest, we can recognize that the affirmation of the priesthood here and a perpetual priesthood, like earlier priesthood language, points forward to the new covenant work of the Messiah. We see in the book of Hebrews that the Old Testament deals much with priests, but they could not keep their office. The high priests themselves would die, and the priests and high priests were themselves affected by sin. It is Christ who begins to accomplish a priesthood fulfilling all the earlier foreshadowings of priesthood, including what Phineas represented. A perpetual priesthood will ultimately be established by Christ himself forever because of his resurrection life. And it will be a priesthood superior to Phineas, as zealous as Phineas was. Christ himself is zealous. I'm willing to say that Phineas is a type of Christ. Phineas points forward to him. Phineas cares about righteousness and the law of God. And in his actions, he has zeal for the house of God. He has zeal for the tabernacle. We're told in John chapter 2... That Jesus has zeal for the temple of Yahweh. And we also recognize that Jesus engages in priestly work. Christ himself is our perfect priest and one even greater than Phineas. It will not be Christ Jesus inflicting a spear, but receiving one. It will be Christ who on the cross makes atonement not by punishing the wicked but by taking their punishment. And truly, this shows in a surpassing way how Phineas is a foreshadowing of Christ, the one who would fulfill all of those earlier patterns. Paul wants us to learn from this wilderness generation. He wants us to think about these things even as he wrote to the Corinthians and as we read these words in 2023. In 1 Corinthians 10 He says, our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea, baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and ate spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Nevertheless, in verse 5, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And these things took place, he says, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So one of the takeaways from Numbers 25 is we recognize how the priesthood anticipates Christ. We see how Christ himself is an even greater Phineas by his work of atonement, not to inflict vengeance upon the wicked, but rather to take the justice of God upon himself that he might avert the wrath of God. You know, Phineas did what he did to avert the Lord's wrath. Well, friends, so did Christ on the cross. He did what he did as our propitiation. Not only do we see these Christological truths, Paul wants you to notice some examples from these wilderness stories. He says you look at their examples and you realize these things took place for us so that we won't desire evil like they did. Look where the desire for evil gets them. Destruction. They perish under the judgment of God. And he says do not be idolaters as some of them were. And then in verse 8, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And then he names all the thousands that fell in a single day. 
I think what he would have in mind is Numbers 25. He said we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor should we grumble as some of them did and were destroyed. These things happened to them as an example written down for our instruction. Why do we study things like Numbers 25? Because these things were written down for our instruction. The New Testament says so. The New Testament is saying about numbers that we have these things written for our instruction. He says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. What do we see among the unfaithfulness of the Israelites? The faithfulness of God. The common temptations that ensnare these Israelites in their encampment. But the faithfulness of God shines. With the temptation, He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee, flee, flee from idolatry. Let's pray.